You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. So how important is it to understand our personal money story and how it can impact our ability to attract more wealth? So there's a two-part answer to that. Firstly, it's very important to understand where your story is at. And so understanding why you believe about money, what you believe about money, how you see money, what is it that you even think about money? Because a lot of us would not spend the time to actually go, what do you even think about money? Like, what is my belief around it? The good thing is, thanks to social media gods, we all have a better understanding of money or at least some version of our story of the money or we have picked the story from social media that we like and we say, that's my story about money because, you know, my parents said so. And that's okay. That's okay. Till the time you have some sense of understanding of your money story, but it pretty much stops there. That's the only role money story has played in your life is until now is because you've let it run its course. But... Most money stories would change immediately if you decide to change them right now. Because money usually doesn't have a deeply associated trauma to it. You might have micro traumas, if I want to call it that, which may be that, oh, you know, people kept saying we don't have enough money or whatever. It's a micro trauma. It's not a major trauma. It's not so hard on you that it's unrootable and you cannot change your present circumstance because, you know, you believe that. Like how you believe something that was repeatedly told to you, you can repeatedly tell yourself a different thing and you will start believing it, right? So that money story is, yes, important to know so you know what you're working with, but that's pretty much the only role of a money story. You must know that money stories are created on the fly right now. So if you start believing something different about money right now, which my hope will be through this episode that this happens, is that you start believing different about money, you will see that suddenly you don't have that money story, what you had. You have a completely different money story. How can one begin to identify their money story? Is there like a question that we can ask ourselves? I think the foundational question one may ask themselves to understand their money story is to ask, what is it that I believe about money? Yeah. What do I believe about money? And just do a free writing thing on it, like write pages and pages if you need to, but find the belief that you have around money and most of it probably is true for you on a day-to-day basis. So if it is something like money is easy, that's probably what you believe. If you're listening to this episode, most likely you don't believe that. Most likely you have some sort of belief where it goes, money doesn't come easy. Money doesn't grow on trees. Money is hard. Hard work equals to money. So on and so forth. And those are the stories that you have repeatedly told yourself and that have formed the belief that you have around money. But there are usually 10 to 20 beliefs that you have and pretty straightforward as you write them, you'll go, oh, yeah, that's what I believe about money. Which, and I also love that you said that you can identify it and you can also choose to write a new money story and start to believe something today. Another question that I love asking, so I just want to share this with your audience, is you can ask yourself, if I were to describe my relationship to money, if money was a person, what would that relationship look like? What's my relationship to that? So I did that once and I realized in the past, I hadn't really respected my money. I hadn't. I brought it in, but I didn't know how to hold on to it, right? Mm -hmm. So there was, I think it's just really like, I'm a visual person. So for me, when I looked at money as an actual person, then I could look at, well, what's my relationship to this person, quote unquote person? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's yeah. a fantastic way of looking at it. Yeah. 
So what are some key mindset shifts or beliefs that contribute to abundance and success? The key mindset to anything, really, is our mind is going to have a thought. And the thought that we think most often becomes what is the truth of our life. And that is the secret to anything really in life is a thought you would have most frequently would become the reality of your life. We talked about money stories really briefly. Now, if I was to rewind the story that led you to create a money story or a belief about money, you'll find that you can see that story in many different ways. It's the same story, but the viewpoint on the story will define the belief about money. And that is the thought that creates the narrative of our life. So if there was one fundamental thing that I would say one must question, challenge, think about, it is what is the thought they're having consistently about money? And if they can transform that thought, your fundamental understanding of money will change and your attraction of money will change. Your ability to make money will change. There is a quote where they said, a hero or a villain in the story always have a cathartic, really sad story. It's something that is terrible that has happened to them. It is something that absolutely shouldn't happen to any human being, but it happens to them. But the reason why they become the hero or villain is because what they say because of that terrible thing that happened to them. A villain says, this happened to me, I will do the same to the world. A hero says, this happened to me. I will never let this happen to anybody else. That's the only difference. It's the same story. It's the same backstory. It's the same terrible thing that happened. And that's the same with money. Whatever you think has caused you to believe something about money could have been framed in a different way. There's an instance in my life that happened when I was uh, maybe 13, 14 years old. And I lived in a household of 23 people, very middle class, lower middle class family, as we would call it in India. I don't know if it's actual term, but basically 23 people, joint family. We lived pretty much in a room that was shared with me and my brother. And if a guest would come over, they would also sleep in the same room, right? So in that room, as we all slept, I felt lack of, right? I felt there's lack of money in this house and there's lack of abundance in this house. And because of what happens next, I decided, well, listen, I need to change my money story and I need to take risks to be able to create more money and abundance for myself. And my family at that time had a common narrative of saying, well, you shouldn't do business because business is hard and because businesses fail. And from what I understood, my brother took that and became somebody who's employed by another company. Now, he does well for himself, but he's employed by an organization and, and he works there and so on and so forth. So he's a very typical nine-to-five guy. And I took that same story and saw it a different way. I saw that story as saying money requires risk, which means it has tremendous growth potential, right? So it's the same narrative that two people live and that we see this all the time. Same two people, same family, same background, same story, but they come out two completely different individuals. It's because of what you tell yourself. So if you rewind your money story, you'll find that you just chose the narrative that wasn't helpful. It wasn't that was the truth of that situation. It was the narrative that you picked out of that situation. Well, speaking of risks and, you know, the quote, without 
any risks, there are no rewards. How can individuals overcome their financial fears and their limiting beliefs that prevent them from taking those risks and pursuing opportunities that would potentially make them more money? Based on what I understand, there are a few common fears that I see trending in generally when I'm speaking to a person or we're talking about fears about money. The fear is usually there's not enough to go around. There's a limited amount of money that is there. And because there's a limited amount of money that is there, there's only that much money that can go around. So that's the first fear. Fear of just general lack of how much money is actually available in the world. The second fear is I am not enough. And that is usually is, is again, a very recurring pattern where it goes, well, I don't think I can make money or I don't think I deserve money, or it can stem into deservingness as well. Not just I'm not enough, it's like I'm not deserving of money as well, is where you start to believe because of, again, your past stories or past patterns, past meanings that you made because of circumstances that didn't work out or life didn't work out, or people told you a story and you believed that story to be true. And so you start to make that belief and you go, okay, I'm not enough, I'm not deserving. And the third one that commonly happens to be is somebody did something, they made a mistake, and then they lost money in that. And now they think, well, I made that mistake that I'm going to make again. And so I'm going to repeating pattern. And my fear is that I'm going to make the same mistake. So I'm going to not be able to ever make money. Right? So three very common patterns that tend to happen. There's not enough. I'm not enough. Or I'm going to make the same mistake that I've made before. All three of them are kind of disempowering or not a useful belief per se. They're useless in some way. They don't actually help you move further. When somebody has that belief, I always encourage them to really think about the energy of lack and the energy of abundance. Now, if you think about these three fears, first step to the fear is to accept the fear. So accept that is what is happening. It is happening that you made a mistake. And then because of that mistake, you are fearful that you can make the mistake again. The second could be because you do feel there is not enough. And lastly, it may be that I am not enough. And whatever that is, once you accept it, then you can lean into finding abundance. Then you can go, okay, this is all the beliefs that I have about what is my fear, right? And there's a lack energy to it. It's an energy of not enough in some way. What if you could turn that into the energy of abundance? The energy of abundance is, if you were to talk about energies generally, right? When you think there is a lack of something, how do you feel? Not good. Not empty. good. Empty. Empty. And usually what would happen is you'll feel lower self-esteem. So anybody that feels lack, you would see them walking with less confidence. You'll feel they have less self-esteem. They think less of themselves, so on and so forth. Do we think, just even if you're projecting to somebody else, that that person who's feeling lack of self-esteem is going to take confident, congruent actions to create a greater reality? Not in those moments. Not, when Not in those moments. Yeah. And, and that moments have repeated enough times. That is the state of life that they live, which yeah. means it's almost impossible for them to do something that will actually change that state. Because that state is self-fulfilling itself. Right? When you're in the energy of lack, that's how you are all the time. And then transports and transmutes or other areas of your life. You may start with lack of money. Soon it becomes lack of love. Soon it becomes lack of opportunities. Soon it becomes lack of health. And that's why you would see people who are in a state of lack. They're in a state of lack for all of it, especially if you meet them several years after when they didn't work on that situation of lack and they didn't operate from a place of abundance. Now let's switch over and think about a person that is acting from a state of abundance. 
When somebody's acting from a state of abundance, it improves their self-esteem, it increases their self-esteem, it increases their ability to think positive thoughts, it increases their desire and ability to take confident, congruent actions, right? Because they're thinking, there is enough money to go around in the world. I am enough. I may have made a mistake before, but now I'm not going to make the same mistake because guess what? I already made the mistake. I learned from it. That's the energy of abundance. So once you have accepted for the lack that you're experiencing, once you have accepted the fears that you live in, you lean into the abundance of universe. You lean into that abundance and that gives you more confidence and more congruence to where and what you want to create. And that really creates the new mindset of saying, I don't have to be fearful of what's not there and what's there and so on and so forth. One of the things that one of my friends, Maria Sapir, talks about a lot is your mind is always telling you something. If you tell your mind to tell you better things or better thoughts, you will have better self-esteem. You will have better confidence. You will have a better abundant mindset. And because you're telling yourself, I have money and I am creating money and I am abundant and I am fulfilled and I am capable of attracting any amount of wealth or money that I want to. If you keep telling yourself the story, it seems like it's mumbo jumbo, but it's not. It's very psychological. The more you tell yourself the story, the more you start believing it, easier it is for you, A, to accept it for when it happens. Because a default reaction, and this happens to, let's say, people who win lotteries a lot, right? They suddenly get a million bucks. Usually it's found that within a year of one to three years, they're broke again, right? That's kind of the research uh, that suggests. The reason is because it's a shock to their system. They don't have the financial literacy around it. It's a shock to their system. It feels fearful because they're not familiar with it. They don't know what the hell is there. They go, hold on, what the heck was that? Right? Their body, their soul, their mind, none of it is ready to receive it. So when it's given to them, they either spend it, blow it up, give it away to other people, basically lose it all in a matter of one to three years. A million bucks, 10 million bucks, whatever the amount might be. And that's the thing that you're doing when you're actually telling yourself a better thought. When you are training your mind to accept the wealth, when you're training your mind to know that you're rich and wealthy and have money and so on and so forth, when money comes, you don't blow it up. Because it will come, especially if you're operating more from confidence and congruence because you're taking bolder actions, making it easier for you to make money. So these fears that are there right now, as you layer them up with positive thoughts and congruent thoughts, it creates that positive narrative. Well, speaking of narrative, what are some other strategies that you recommend for creating a healthy relationship with money and managing personal finances effectively? So the first thing I think about money, and this I only learned later because I was always curious about money, so I didn't find this resistance for me. But I realized as I met more and more people, how many of us are fearful of talking about money? Talking about money in just an open setting like this, or talking about money with our partners, talking about money with our business partners, talking about money with our friends. And that's a very big problem. Because when you don't talk about money, you create preconceived notions about money yourself. And that actually limits your understanding of money. Because most of us have never been taught about money. We are all financially or money illiterate in some way, right? Even if you studied accounts, you actually never really studied money. Money is a very different study than accounting, right? You may understand a PL statements and you may not understand nothing about money. Money works very differently than how we think money works, right? So the first thing is talk about money. Ask people who have made money how they made money. And you'll find very interesting and different truths about money. 
right? You'll find things like people who make a lot of money are not necessarily thinking about money so much. They're not. They're thinking about something else completely. They're thinking about wealth a lot of the times. They're not even thinking about money. They're not thinking cash flow. They're thinking about abundance that are to a greatest length. They're thinking about experiences a lot of times. They're thinking about the experience of money. They're not even thinking about money. And that's another thing to note is when you start to talk about money, you realize it's not about money or it's just money, right? What does that mean is money is not that big a deal. It's a big deal in the mind of a person who doesn't have any and thinks they can't have any. But otherwise, it's not a big deal because anybody that has made any money knows that it can be made again because it's just stardust in a way. It's available. It's available to everyone. Anybody can have it as much as they want to have it. You have, of course, beliefs and stories around it, which is why you don't have it. But at the same point in time, is it available to everyone? Absolutely. Can anybody have it? Absolutely. But does everybody have it? No. Right? And that's again, comes down to because we don't talk about it, because we don't build literacy around it. That also brings me to my third point is how are you educating yourself around money? Right? Not just the practical aspects of money, which is good. You need to know the practical aspects of money, but you need to understand the psychological aspects of money. And you also need to understand the spiritual aspects of money on how really money comes into our lives and how it really gets developed and how it grows and what makes it grow. And that again happens because of talking, because of having conversations around it, talking to the right kind of people, taking the right courses, taking the right programs, working on our mindset. All of those things kind of add together for us to really, really understand how money actually works. Now, the most practical step-by-step is to understand that money happens in stages. And this is very generalized view of it, but most people live in stage one, which is they're more expensive, less income. So let's call it M-E-L-I, right? You're more expensive, you have less income, which is why most of America lives in debt. At least in America, that's the case. Then comes the second stage where you have more expenses, but you also have more income, M-E-M-I. More expenses, more income is the stage where you would see the people who splurge a lot, right? You would go, oh, they're going, buying the fancy cars, and they're buying the fancy houses, and they have, you know, ridiculous watches or whatever that thing is, right? They have more income, but they also have more expenses. These people also never get wealthy. This is the, you can call sometimes, they're called the new rich, right? They wear the brands that are plastered all over their shirts and their clothes and jackets because they have made more money, but they also have more expenses. They never make true wealth. And then comes the people that I think we should all aspire to be, which is individuals that make more money and have less expenses. This is how I've always lived my life. Less expenses, more money, LEMI. And LEMI is this perfect state because you always go, okay, if I make $100, 20 of them needs to go into compounding money. And that simply means you'll find a vehicle and there are tons of them available, but you find a vehicle that automatically gets your money to make more money. And people think you can't do that early on in your life, but you can. Because I used to make about, let's say $1,000 approximately, maybe it was $1,200 or $1,300, when I realized the biggest mistake I was making, which is I was making more than what I was making before that, but I was spending more. So I was going with a net zero, which happens to be most people's life generally. But I said, that doesn't take me anywhere because tomorrow, let's say I get unwell or sick or I need something for something, you know, that something that I really, really need. Or if I want to buy a house for my parents, if I want to get out of the situation that I'm going to get out of, what am I going to do? And so that shifted me and a couple of books, of course, shifted me to go, I need to start getting into finding how do I make more money but my expenses don't rise with it. So I actually spend less money. And because of that, I started saving 20% of whatever I would make. 
it doesn't matter if it's $1,400, if it's $4,000, if it's $40,000. 20% of them go straight away to something that is a vehicle that automatically compounds money. So this is your national bonds. It could be stock market. It could be a fund that you may invest in as a group, as a real estate investment, whatever it might be. But something that grows at about 7 to 10% year on year. You want at least that much because inflation usually is 2 to 5% depending on the year or whatever. But average, if you do 7 to 10%, at least, if you can get more, fantastic. But 7 to 10% at least gives you this really safe place where you are making just a little bit more than what the inflation is, which overall compounds your money over a long period of time, like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And that is why at the age 28 or 29, I was able to buy a house for my parents, which is not a very expensive house. It's $80,000 or $100,000 in India, but it was awesome for my age at the time. Like I was 28, 29 years old and I had only started practicing this at 24, 25. Of course, I also learned how to make more money, significantly more money by turning my career into a career plus business. And because of that, I was able to compound money faster. And I was really good at that because I learned that skill. And it's a very easy skill to learn, but you need to learn it. You need to get literate about it. But once you do that, then you see money just doubling up on itself. Because of course, that house that I bought many, many years ago that was worth maybe $80,000 when I bought it, today is $150,000. So net in 10 years or 15 years, however long it has been, that house made me another $50,000. is a 40, 50% gain on if I sold this right now. Post-tax, maybe still 20, 30% gain. And that's the money that I can borrow against. So it's You need to understand the dynamic of money a little bit more and see how to really compound money. I can see that there is a clear mindset between the scarcity of money and the abundance of money. So I would love to hear from you how individuals can shift from that. How can an individual shift from the scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset? And particularly when it comes to their financial goals, because you were able to put away, you know, starting from a young age, what, you said 20% of your income every month or so, right? Not everyone thinks that way because they might be in a scarcity mindset. So how do you recommend they do that? So let's first understand just so that we have the same page of what a scarcity mindset and what an abundance mindset is. So scarcity mindset is when you believe there is not enough, this is not enough, right? And when you operate from the place of there is not enough, this is not enough, your bias psychologically and spiritually is towards how everything is less, right? Everything is limited. Everything is not enough. And when you feel everything is not enough, you feel like you need to take more. So you have a desperate energy towards everything. And this translates very, very prominently in money because money does create a lot of desperation for people because it feels like it's the fuel of life, which it is not, but it feels like the fuel of life, right? You can only buy experiences with money. So because of that, what would happen is your relationship with money is desperate. It's like having a desperate love partner. Nobody likes a desperate love partner. You want your partner to have a dance with you. You don't want them to lean on you so much that you feel like you're suffocating. And it's the same with money. When you have a desperate energy for money, you're suffocating money. Money doesn't like you anymore. Abundance mindset is, on the contrary, feels there's enough for everyone and then some more. There is no limitation. There's no upper ceiling. There's no glass ceiling. There is nothing that needs to stop money. And because of that, what would happen is that your conversation with money, your dance with money is different. Your conversation with money is, oh, you can have it, I can have it, we can all can have it. So you have a more give energy. You have a more energy of saying, you can have some, and you can have some, and you can have some. And when you operate from that abundant energy of saying, there's enough to go around for all of us, and then some for all of us, not just you and me, but for all of humanity. And when you operate from that 
give energy, you're not the desperate partner anymore. You're the partner who says, hey, how can we play together? What makes you feel good? What makes me feel good? Let's do this together. And you're doing that conversation with money too. So it changes everything around you because suddenly when you are from a give energy, who has give energy? The millionaires and the billionaires. They always have a give energy. Like, sure. You want a donation? Sure. You want to buy a car? That means like I might drive only once a time? Sure, I'll buy a car. Do you want that light? Do you want that house? Do you want whatever? Like, it's a give energy. It's like, sure, let's get more things and give it away in sense of like not only charity work, but just generally in life. It's like they're generous with their time. Usually they're generous with their energy. Generally, usually. The more wealthy people you meet, if you are meeting them in the right context and container, they're very generous people. They're very funny. They're light. They're not very heavy about life. They're actually real chill people most of the time. And because of that, they attract even more abundance in their life. So what if our mantras didn't come from a place of saying, I don't have enough. This is not enough. I don't have This is not enough. Instead of that, if the mantras was, I have enough. Money is coming to me. Money is constantly flowing towards me. Money flows through me all the time. I've got the golden touch. Whatever those statements are that give us or puts us into a state of abundance, right? We were talking about this previously, but whatever story, whatever narrative we tell ourselves, whatever we mentally tell ourselves as a thought, it creates an attraction factor. It creates a bias. It creates a filtration system almost. Is when you're looking at lack, what happens is you're constantly looking at lack. And because you're constantly looking at lack, all you see is lack. And because you see lack, you think there is not enough. There cannot be enough. And because there cannot be enough, how can I have it? Oh, self-fulfilling prophecy of lack. A self-fulfilling prophecy of more or abundance sounds more like this. Oh, there is more. There is so much more. Oh, they have it. I can have it too. Oh, they have it. I can have it too. Maybe we can all have it together. Maybe it's just in time. It's just flowing towards me. It's just coming to me. Now, that energy creates the self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, it didn't happen this time. I should try another time. Guess what happens? Your action becomes more aligned with more abundant ideas and strategies and movement and outs. It becomes easier. It's not desperate. It is in acceptance of that it is happening for you. And that creates more positive affirmative actions. And once you have it, and this is the critical thing to note, is you want to start tagging when you have the experience of abundance. And that's what people, most people don't do. Is even if you're experiencing abundance, when you get your paycheck, you don't tag it as wow, I made this much money this month. Usually you go, ah, crap, I'm barely going to save anything. Lack versus abundance. But if you operate from the abundance, thinking, wow, I made this much money this time and it's amazing. I'm going to try and save 5% this year or this month, right? 2% this month, 10% this month. I'm going to see how that works. I'm going to play this game, right? If you have that fun energy associated to it and you tag it, what suddenly happens is that in your mind and in your energetic field, now you have sent the universe signal that I know I'm abundant. In your psychology, you have tagged yourself as an abundant person because you receive that money, not with the idea of, oh crap, that won't even pay the bills, but as the idea of the, wow, I have all of this. This is amazing. And because of that, you will see more abundance. And as you see more abundance, you tend to find more opportunities. You tend to talk to people differently. You tend to attract more energy and you tend to have more money because of that. It really does boil down to our attitude, right? Because, I mean, honestly, that's what I'm hearing. You can get your paycheck and you can have a shitty attitude about it and be like, oh, I'm not going to be able to save this much money or you can be grateful for it and trust that more is going to be coming. 
attitude and the story, more importantly, because attitude, yes, it's the attitude that's a consequence of the story and the thought that you have. Thought is the primary determinant of every attraction in our life, metaphysically and psychologically. So it's not just metaphysical, it's not just law of attraction, woo-woo stuff. It is actually psychologically, also, it creates a filtration system and it's been studied. It's not something that I'm just making up on the way. It's actually studied that psychologically, you start filtering things differently and so your experience of life changes. And once your experience of life changes, things happen for you easier because the action become congruent to the experience of life. And when actions become congruent to the experience of life, guess how, what the life happens? The life just changes because your actions are different. And metaphysically, for the purposes of spirituality, is that's the message to universe. Universe is going to listen to you irrespective. So if you keep telling it, I'm in lack, I'm in lack, I'm in lack, you're going to stay in lack. If you tell the universe you're in abundance, you're in abundance, you're in abundance, you're going to stay in abundance. That's just how it is. It's really simple metaphysically. It is going to listen to every single message that you give it. The more congruent and long-term confidently you give a message for a long time, the more realization will happen in that context and that container. Okay, so let's go from metaphysical to practical because I want to know what are some practical steps that someone can take to improve their financial literacy and gain control over their financial future. There is a step-by-step system that you can follow. First of all is write down all your income sources, all your expenses. Two things to first. And expenses can be average over two months or average expenses in, in two, three months because sometimes, you know, electricity bill will be 10 bucks more or less, right? But you will know your averages. So you want to find out your averages of what are the different expenses that you have. You want to find out all the sources of income. All the sources of income is very important because a lot of times people just write their salary, but they don't write money they're receiving from their parents or a partner or something else. And when you don't write that, you don't have a clear view of how much you actually make, right? So write down exactly how much you actually receive every single month because the unknown of income is what usually creates unknown expenses. What we'll find, and when we do this exercise with even our clients or if you do it with our students, a lot of times people will go, oh, wow, I just saw how much I spend on Amazon every month which is basically when you are on an emotional high or a low, you go buy something that you don't even need and you order it and you get it. And it feels like, oh, it's a $10 thing, but it compounds over a month to $300, $400. And because there is this unknown income, you don't really feel the burn of those three, $400. So you don't really see it as a big debt because these are unknown expenses and unknown incomes that are kind of balancing each other out but if you suddenly now know, oh, I have all this unknown income that I've never really logged as income before, and of all these unknown expenses, you suddenly find that a lot of things that you do in life that can totally be ignored or can be negotiated, can be discussed, can be removed. And that would be next step is once you know your total known and unknown income together, you write down all of the expenses that you've written down. Now you look at these unknown expenses and see how many of these are totally irrelevant. It may mean that you might delete the Amazon app from your phone, right? So you don't just buy because of whatever reason, right? It may mean that you might say, well, I have every damn subscription that I could imagine and I don't use half of them, right? There's really few people that enjoy Hulu, right? So you can cancel Hulu. So you might just cancel that. And I know it's like 17 bucks, but you will find such things that might be, you might be like, I don't even enjoy it. Now, I don't recommend deleting anything that you enjoy. So I'm not one of those guys, stop drinking lattes. No, have your avocado toast in your latte if you enjoy it, but make sure you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, then it's useless, right? So, so you want to find out what are the things that you don't enjoy or are just meaningless expenses that you look at and you go like, why? the hell am I doing this? It's not even fun, right? So remove those. 
close, right? That's the easiest thing to do. Second thing to do is negotiation. One of the very uncomfortable things that people have to do, but it is one of the powerful things that you can do, is most of the bills, at least in US, what I've learned to find is you can negotiate them. You can negotiate your debt. You can negotiate the payment of the debt. You can negotiate pretty much anything. And if you're not negotiating, you're leaving money on the table. So find out what are those things that you can negotiate and negotiate them. Either negotiate a better payment or a slower payment, depending on where you are financially, but you can negotiate it. So negotiate. That's the next step because that will create some level of another cut of expenses that you can have. You can negotiate on rent. You can negotiate on certain bills. So find those negotiation things. Once you've found the negotiation things, then you go back and look at your income and expenses again and now see if you balance out. If you balance out, great, because that's the first step, right? That's at least you're not losing money every month now. If you're in a plus, try to see if you can pay off your debt faster. The reason to pay off debt faster is mostly because debt leads to long-term capital loss and you don't want to have that if you can avoid it. If you can, you, sometimes you can't and that's okay too. But if you can, you want to avoid it. Once you've taken care of debt or you've done the best you can on the debt idea, now look at your income and expenses and see if they match. If you're making surplus, take that surplus, put it away. Put it into a safe vehicle. In US, it would be something like a Vanguard fund, which is safe. It's not overly aggressive. It's not underly aggressive. And even if you put like 200 bucks a month on it or 400 bucks a month on it, you can end up with thousands of dollars in like 10 years or 20 years. It's long term. It's easy. You can make it automatic. You do that. And that's one of the ways to do it. And you start building wealth that way. Another way to do it is once you have that number, now you go, how do I make more money? And use the opportunity of gig economy because that's the beauty of today's world. You could have two gigs on the side and your employer will never know. And it sounds cheap for now, but it is a great way to move forward. I've always, not anymore, but even when I had my businesses, I always had a gig, like something I would do. Like even when my business was doing okay, I always coach. I still coach. Of course, it benefits my business. But at the same point in time, I coach not only because it benefits my business, it's because it keeps me sharp. It keeps me more on point to what's actually happening for a client. So I'm not just hypothetically or theoretically telling anything. I actually know what's happening on ground with a client, with a repeat client, with a new client. I'm actually actively doing it. But also is a great savings plan because all of that income goes straight into something that I fund, right? It could be a business I want to invest in. It could be a fund I want to invest in. It could be a house I want to buy. It could be anything that compounds income. So if you take a gig, let's say it's a weekend gig, something that you can be like, all right, in the mornings, I will just drive Uber for four hours. It might make you 400 bucks, but 400 bucks done four times a month gives you about $1,600. And the $1,600, if you saved all of them, compounded over 10 years, could mean, I don't know the math on top of my mind, but probably means another $30,000, $40,000, which is great over 10 years on just something that you do over a weekend, right? So you don't even have to worry so much about oh, how am I going to get wealthy? Well, you can. You can have at least a fund. 10 years from now, if you did this small little thing of doing a gig economy, if you're listening to this podcast, it's very likely you're a coach or you want to be a coach. Now, that's a very profitable gig to do. You could do that gig and you could be making $10,000, $20,000 extra every single month. And $10,000, $20,000 extra every single month could mean that you could very easily be saving or making a million dollars over 10 to 20 years. If you make, I think, $50,000 extra this year, which you could totally make as a coach. I think if you put it at uh, inflation, we were calculating this the other day, how much 
a coach can make in 10 or 20 years if they just made 50,000 bucks extra in one year, which is very possible as a coach. If you made $50,000 extra, 5% inflation, 11% return on investment, which is reasonable. When you invest a little bit more, you learn about investing a little bit more. You would make a million dollars in the next 10 years. And you'll make, I think, $2 million in the next 20. It's just phenomenal. Just that one gig. You're, yeah. Just one gig, yeah. That's it. Just you already are a coach. You can do this on weekends. You can do it after your job. So you don't even have to worry about quitting anything. You could do this part-time. $50,000 is about 10 clients a year at $5,000 a client, which is totally doable, right? If you're like, no, that's too much for me. Fine, $2,000 a client, you need 40 clients a year. No, not even 40. You need like 30 clients a year and you make 60,000 extra. 30 clients a year, that's two and a half clients a month. That's it, right? Very doable. But we don't think about it that way. And because we don't think about it that way, we don't think in compounding time and it becomes like we go math, looks scary, but it's very compounding. It actually, once you do it, you go, oh, wow, this is actually not that hard to make money. If I extend it over time, it's hard to make money today. And also, if you're very clear, like you said, on, on your expenses, on your income, how much extra money you want to make, and you actually break down like, oh, if I want to make an extra 50000 I need these many clients this much. I mean... I think the common theme in all of this is to get really clear, like really clear on your numbers, really clear on the kind of lifestyle you want, really clear on how much extra money you want to make. And sometimes people can become a little bit obsessed with money. And so I'm curious to know, how does one strike a balance between pursuing that financial success and maintaining a fulfilling life beyond money? I think that's a question usually a person that asks that have not made money and are fearful of money. Because there are some people who get obsessed with money, but they are usually people who are hiding from something is why they get obsessed about money. Anybody that is truly wealthy, I've not seen them obsess over money. I've not seen them. They obsess over fame a lot more than money. What I have seen, at least in my experience, is like people don't necessarily obsess about money, especially if they have any. Right, People who obsess about the idea that, oh, I won't live a fulfilled life or, oh, what if I just obsess about money or that person's obsessed about money. The person is not obsessed about money at all. You are thinking that they're thinking about money. They're not thinking about money. They're thinking about something else completely. For example, now I'm pretty, I'm decent. I do well for myself and we do well for ourselves as a family. I'm not obsessive about money at all. Like I'm thinking about, I want to create that next event. I want to have that experience that I had at Supercoach Experience. That is an event we just did and how much people loved it. I want to make it better next time. We had an NPS of 75. Why don't we have an NPS of 85 at an event? Now, these are obnoxious NPSs. These are really high. Usually you don't have events where you also pitch offers as an NPS of 75. It's really, really high. And I'm like, I'm obsessing about an event. I'm not obsessing about money. I'm obsessing about the idea of this product that we are working on right now in partnership with this company called Viome. And I'm obsessing, how can I make it the best nutrition product ever in the world? Because I know how much nutrition has impacted my life. I'm not obsessing about money. I'm obsessing about that nutrition product that I'm going to create. Most people who are successful don't obsess about money. They're happy to have money. They're grateful for it. They enjoy their money. They don't obsess about money. It sounds like they're creating the next thing. Like they're more in creation mode. than They're way more excited about that shit. Yeah. So how can individuals overcome setbacks or financial challenges while maintaining a positive mindset and staying motivated? There's a term I learned when I was going through a setback myself. This setback is pretty recent where we had something happen in the business, one of our businesses. And in the business... It seemed like, and again, the final numbers haven't come in yet, but it is a possibility that we may lose up to a million dollars. So I was feeling like really almost grief around it. 
I was like, I'm really sad that because I have a story in my mind that I'm very financially intelligent and I want to always feel financially intelligent. And because of that story, when I lose money, I have a little bit of grief. I'm happy to not make money, but losing money doesn't sit well with me. So I, I was having kind of a grief moment. And so I was like, is financial grief a thing? Like, is that a thing or do you only grieve people? So I searched it and I found some people do call it financial grief is when you lose money. And so you have grief associated to it. There is something called financial grief. And so I was having that experience. And so I said, okay, what can I do about this? So I looked up some tools. And one of the tools that really stood out for me is to ask yourself these three questions. Question number one is how much is it that you've actually lost? Right. And be very specific about it, like put an actual number of what did you lose. So, for example, here I put a million dollars. It's not a specific number, but just to give a frame of reference. Right. So I said, OK, and it's not even that we have actually lost it and we probably won't lose it now that I'm looking at numbers. But that was my projection at the time. Like, oh, crap, we might lose up to a million bucks here. Right. So I was like, OK, so that's what the number is. And so, OK, you have a million dollars. Then the second question is very interesting. It's like, in losing the million dollars or in losing the money that you have lost, what is it that you have gained because of losing that money? And the first answer always is, you know, nothing. You, I mean, what have I gained? I've gained nothing. I lost money. That's all I have. Right. But usually what happens in the universal laws, it's a give and take. If you are losing something, you are gaining something. Now, that gaining may not directly look like how losing looks like. So it doesn't mean if you lost a million, you got a million. Usually, it will look like you lost a million and you had some kind of realization, some kind of relationship, some kind of acceptance, something that has been developed as a consequence or as an effect or as a trade-in for that loss. So for me, it was like, I definitely learned that I must trust my intuition. Because when my intuition tells me to do something, this was where I didn't do what my intuition suggested. So I learned that if I did what I always knew I should do, but I kind of like said, okay, maybe it's just like too out there. I shouldn't do this, blah, blah, blah. I didn't do it. And because of that, potentially I could have this loss. I definitely learned I should lean more into my intuition and be accepting of what is coming through me because it may have a message for me. And the third step was now put a financial value to what you just gained. So to me, I was like, wow, if I trust my intuition, and if I'm bright in this game that I'm saying, which I think I am, I have value of way more than a million dollars because my intuition is so much clearer or my acceptance of my intuition is so much clearer that I now go, no, we shouldn't do that. Oh, we should do that. And it has become one of those, like I was just sharing about the obsession of the event that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really locked that event is an exercise that we did towards the end of the event. It's the first time we ever did it. It was completely channeled. It was completely an intuitive realization that I had that we should do this. And then that, it was a massive exercise in some sense because we had all the attendees and there were 700 people there. And they moved all their chairs and sat on ground to do this exercise. So it was totally like either it would be a super hit or it would have bombed so hard. It was one of those moments that people were like, Ajit, it was worth flying to Estonia, which is really hard to get to, just for this one <laughs> thing that you did for 30 minutes. 
right? It was that powerful for a lot of people. They had big releases. They had great downloads. They found strength in themselves again. And that's a big thing for coaches is to be able to find their strength, their power, their intuition back again. It was all channeled. And that is because now I trust my intuition more. I know how our business is going to grow because I trust my intuition more. I am more present and more confident in what my needs and expectations are in my relationship because I trust my intuition. I know my intuition that I must say this because if I'm not saying it, this is what I'm... Comp- so basically, I have gained way more than a million dollars in future revenue, if I have to call it revenue, or just gain in life, way more than a million dollars because of losing that million dollars. And suddenly the grief goes away. Because now you're not so stressed about what I lost because now our filter now is about what I gained. Like even you can see my energy shift, right? Like I started, uh, I had grief, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm like, no, but I've gained all of this. Yeah. So it's okay. It's okay. It's worth the price. Because now you're going to have stronger self-trust. And like you said, you're not going to make those decisions that might potentially have you lose money again because this time you're going to trust yourself the first time around. Yeah. So how can we explore then the spirituality of money? Because that's what it really sounds like, the spirituality of money and also develop a healthy relationship with it. Are there any specific practices or mindset shifts that can help in this process? So the spirituality of money is the knowingness that there is a lot of money in the world and it's available to all of us. And that's really the essence of all of spirituality of money is the understanding that abundance is available. And to really lean into that or to really start practicing that is to start looking for signs. And you can start with something really small. So something small would be, can you start seeing small money everywhere? Or can you start seeing that money is everywhere? Once you start putting that filter on, and anybody that's listening to this this conversation or this video can start practicing this. For the next seven days, look for money. Just look for money. Usually you would think money's not anywhere, right? You don't see dollars and dimes randomly on the street. You just don't do. But now for the next seven days, I want you to just look for money. Like expect money to happen to you. Expect it to be everywhere. And you will find that in the next seven days, you will see more money than you've seen in the past seven days. Like just randomly. Like you'll see a dollar bill here and there. You'll see cents here and there. I've had people that have reported, and again, I cannot confirm this, but they've reported it to me. But they said, I got a check in my mailbox for a thing that I didn't expect to get this week because I was looking for money, right? I've had people who have had thousands of dollars suddenly show up at their door because of some investment they made 10 years ago. They didn't even remember it. People return their money during that week period where I said, just look for money. That's all you need to do. So you start looking for money and you will start seeing money starts to show up. And it is spiritually because it's a message to the universe, psychologically because you have a cognitive bias towards it is because now you're actually aware when money shows up and you can acknowledge it. So there are two things that are happening. Your spirit is with you and your psychology is with you as well in actually being able to receive. The second thing that I want you to do is to give money. Mm, right? Give money and it doesn't have to be some big checks that you have to sign. No, it's like simply saying, hey, can I pay for the coffee of the person behind me? Yeah. You know, Or can I get, if you see somebody on the street, you're like, hey, can I buy you food? Mm-hmm. Like somebody who you feel like needs it and stuff like that. And not only to people who need it, people who don't even need it. Like people who have no business saying even thank you to you. A kid who's crying with his mother to get an ice cream, ask the mother, hey, listen, can I get her give the ice cream? Is that okay with you? I would love to if that's okay, right? Just something that you're just giving away. You have no expectation in return. You're not expecting anything. You're just simply giving. Again, compounded with the idea of looking for money, 
you start giving little things away. Little money is enough, right? Once you do that, you start receiving a lot more. Suddenly you will see money is everywhere and it comes very easily to you. So that's a practical, easy thing to do to start trusting and building faith that money is actually everywhere and it's in abundance and it is always available to all of us. It is us who get in the way of getting that money. The last practice is the practice that will take some time, but that is the acceptance of being able to receive money. A lot of people never practice the muscle of actually just taking money and saying thank you and that's it, right? Not to justify it immediately. A lot of times, and this used to happen with me all the time, is I would, when I would get a client and somebody would say yes, I would say thank you, and then I would work so hard to prove that I deserve that money to prove that, you know, it's like I would work between sessions. I would send them like 7,000 emails. Like I would justify why I should be paid what I'm getting paid. And it didn't necessarily create a friction, but it was clearly not a good relationship between me and money at the time. And so it was hard for me to receive. But the easier I made it to receive, where I just said, I deserve it. Thank you. The easier it actually became to make more money. Now I could receive $100,000 in my bank account and I don't flinch an eye bit. I don't send a long thank you note. I get a new client that does nothing. It's like, thank you. And I have committed to X, Y, and Z. I deliver X, Y, Z. And that's it because I know I deserve it. And then you're not in that proving energy and then you can be more present with your client. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you're not trying to prove yourself, you can actually just be with your client. Yeah. So the first step was to look for money everywhere. Yeah. Second is to give it away, even in like a small amount, even if it's just buying small a Small is better. Don't do yeah. big giveaways because you then do you're doing as an expectation. You're, yeah, you're trying to do too much. Yeah, and you're expecting something in return. Don't do it for expectation. Give it away for giving it away. And the third one is to receive money. Yes, to be okay with receiving money. That's a little bit of a practice. That will happen as you get more money. You just have to be present to when I receive money, how do I respond to it? If you respond to it with... <gasps> yeah. Then, well, you need to that you need to work on the receiving part. Be okay with and know that it's coming to you. You want to be able to see the PayPal come through the Chase Bank and just be like totally chill about it. You want like, oh, yeah. I deserve it. It's yeah. fine. It's totally what I deserve. I've got it. Yeah, that's perfect. Cool. Yeah. Okay, how can someone differentiate between the desire for more money as a means of security and fulfillment versus a blind chase for wealth? Are there any indicators or signs to look out for? It's an interesting question. Firstly, I think there's a means of security that happens at a stage of our lives. And there is usually a number that is consciously or unconsciously in your mind that makes you feel safe. And usually, if I ask right now, and if you were to close your eyes and go, hey, what's the number that will make me feel safe? If I made this much money or this much money was in my bank account, how much would that money be to make me feel safe? There's a number. It's an unconscious number. It's there. It's always been there. That's your number to start with. And that's the number that you want to go, okay, so that's my safety net. That's my safety number. Now know that as you get wealthier, your safety number will go up as well because your lifestyle will go up. And so your safety number goes up and up and up, but you will have a safety number. And what you want to do is you actually want to push your safety number because that's a way to become more wealthy is to understand that if your safety number is also your thermostat, this is as much as you can go as of now. The moment you hit that, you're going to find ways to come back down. The moment you cross it, you're going to find ways to come back down. And you don't want that if you want to become truly wealthy, right? There is, in my opinion, no wild chase of wealth. Again, that is a wound that somebody might have. And that is some of us that are operating from wound. But people who are conscious and aware, which is this community is mostly conscious and aware. People that we talk to tend to be conscious and aware. 
If you're conscious and aware, you don't operate from a wound beyond a point. After that, you're doing it because you love it. You do it because you enjoy it. It's like the same thing when somebody says, well, how much rich is too rich? Or what is too rich? To me, nothing is too rich. You can have as much as you want. So if you want 100 million, you get 100 million. You want a billion, get a billion. If you want 100,000, that's good too. Whatever that is, that is your number, your desire, should be what you get and must be what you get. And you totally can get, right? It's not something that is wild goose chase or not a goose chase. You shouldn't ever be sacrificing your life because what's the point of money if you don't live your life? The point is to live your life. So you should never sacrifice your life in that chase. But again, if somebody's doing that, that's not because they're chasing wealth. They're chasing a wound. They're chasing a pain. They're chasing acceptance. They're chasing somebody giving them that validation that they are enough. That's not about wealth. It has nothing to do with money. It's actually nothing to do with money. Money wants to come to you. Money wants to be with you. Money's got no issues. Money is just energy that universe sends to you for you to have most of your life. This whole narrative of chase and all that, these are all wounds. These are all stories. These are all things that we do. And it tends to be more men doing it because they're less likely to talk about their wounds and less likely to work on their wounds. And so they tend to have these chases it's not a chase for money. It's a chase for acceptance. It's a chase for approval. It's for recognition. It is for filling that wound because they don't know how else to do it. There's a fun thing that we were talking about with our friends. We were away to this beautiful trip in Taormina in Italy. And one morning we ended up talking on, on the breakfast table with a lot of men and women. And we were talking about how women have um, trauma post-birth. And usually they need to process that trauma. It's a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of loss of identity. A lot of those things come in together to create a really difficult situation for women where there's no real way to process it or not known enough ways to process it except for getting my wife's book. But it is a thing, right? It's a real thing. It's not discussed enough and so forth. And we were discussing this. And so Nita and some of the other women there said, well, women have postpartum rage is that they have this rage because they are so angry and mad and sometimes at themselves, at their kid, their identity, loss of identity, all of that. There's a postpartum rage that they have. And so I said, well, men who are recent fathers have postpartum rage rage because they experience this rage and then they get rageful about the rage that they just experienced. And what they do is go out and work because they also don't know how to process it. So all they do is they say, all right, fine. I'm going to pick up my bags. I'm going to work really, really hard so I can provide for this family so my wife won't be angry and won't be rageful about it because they don't understand it and the wives don't understand it. And so their expression of rage is go work. But it's a wound. It's not necessarily coming from a healthy place. It's mostly because we don't know how to process it. And we can process it. And then money is not the chase. And money is never the chase. If anybody has done any work, you will find that they don't chase money. They actually chase many different things. And, and most people that are chasing money are also not chasing money. They're chasing all these other things that we talked about. I would love to end this with something more personal from your own life growing up. Can you share any insights or lessons that you've learned about money while growing up? I know growing up, you used to live in a home with what, like 23 people, right? That's a lot for someone at a young age to experience. There was a lot of story around 
don't do business, you will fail. They were not stories about money is evil, but there was stories around, well, people with money kind of cheat and people who have made money have cheated most of the time. That's kind of the story that was very common because a lot of such experiences happened in my family where they were in business and a lot of people who got wealthy apparently got wealthy because they cheated my family or whatever the thing was, right? So those were some of the stories that were around me. There were not many uplifting stories around money. But what I recall of my childhood is anytime I met someone wealthy, they were very nice. They were really respectful. They were very kind. They were very generous. They were never loud. They were very like, it was like, you know, modern day there is a, there's a term for it. I think it's called silent luxury or something like that. Quiet luxury, I think that's the word. Is I always saw them as that. Like you can sense that that person's wealthy, but the attire looks like any other attire. It doesn't look like he's a wealthy, he doesn't act like, you know, brash or big or says I own anyone. No, they were like kind, gentle, very charismatic, very present, cares about a kid as much as they care about an adult, like very nice people. So the only story I had about rich people was rich people are nice or rich or money makes people nice. So I had that as an experience. Nobody said that to me, but I cannot recall even one rich person that was not nice. And again, I was a kid too. So maybe my experience was a little corrupted, but always the nicest people. And later on, I learned, oh yeah, they're so rich and they live in this big villa. They will come to our house, where, like I said, like a small house with 23 people living. And they would come sit on the floor just like my grandfather would. No qualms. They don't need some special attire. They're not coming with a big pack, nothing. They would come, sit exactly like my grandfather, eat the same food, enjoy it, laugh out for an hour or two and leave. Like, normal people. And so my experience of wealthy people has always been that the kindest, nicest people. And the nicer and kinder you are, more likely it is that you're wealthier. Wow. I think that just goes to show that we can't take anything that we've been told as children too seriously, right? Because you had that experience and that was a really great experience for you to have, right? Because you're not so jaded around money or making it or having it. But then somebody else who maybe was told something else and they had a different experience, that would definitely impact how they show up around money or their beliefs around people who have money. So I think it just goes to show that don't believe anything and be willing to question stuff and also ask yourself, does this support the future that I'm trying to create? Yeah, and always question the story, even if you do hear a story or make a story about, see, here's what I want to leave that because it's a money conversation. Is If you want to make money, you can't hate rich people. Like you have to be comfortable in understanding that we all are different, of course. But if you hate rich people, you're kind of sending a message that you hate money because that's what a rich person is, right? Somebody who has money, right? So you can't hate money and hope that you have some. That's not possible, right? So you kind of have to love them, right? That's kind of like subconscious, energetic thing, but you kind of have to understand that. You can't hate on something and hope that it comes to you. It's not going to happen. What you need to understand is that like us, like as normal people also, when you were wealthy or not wealthy, whatever it is, anytime in life, you react because of sometimes circumstances that are around you. And there's a big backstory to what you see. There's a huge backstory to what you see. I've had friends that people come and tell me, oh, that person was mean to me or what that person was an asshole and they're wealthy people that they're talking about. And sometimes I would confront because if they're my friends, I would go, why the hell did you do that, man? Or why the hell did you do that, girl? And I would learn that sometimes the kid was sick. 
sometimes because they had like a really bad headache at the time and they were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. They were exhausted and somebody was being really mean to them is why they were being mean to somebody else. So sometimes, I'm not trying to defend anyone here. I'm simply saying, ask the backstory before you make a meaning. Most people are not trying to hurt you. Most people are actually really nice. There's some people, yes, they can be absolute dick. <laughs> Again, their own pain and their own trauma. Yeah. But most people yeah. are not trying to do anything bad. They're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to be nice, as nice as they can possibly be. But like you, they got shit. And because they got shit, sometimes they act like shit. But that doesn't make them a shitty person. So that would be my only invitation. And final thought, like I said, is if you want money, you can't hate money. <laughs>